let's take a selfie. We love to take pictures of ourselves when we're doing things, right? And this flipping ca camera that all the kids understand better than we do helps us do that, right? Wherever we are, whoever we're with, as long as there are not too many of us, and as long as the background is not too confusing, we can take a picture and let everybody know just how, how happy we are, right? Or how sad we are, right? Or just where we are, what we're doing, all with that little magic box. Just take a selfie. The problem is the selfie rarely shows everything. And for many of us, that's a good thing. Usually it shows lots of big faces, right? I was having trouble getting any of the kids in the picture with me. My face was so big because my arms are so short. But that's really not the kind of picture that we usually take. We usually take a picture where we're taking pictures of others because they're engaged in something, doing something, or about something, or because we're seeing something that we want to hold on to. And that's the kind of picture that I was trying to create with the children, that they can all be encompassed together as who they are as a part of the body of the church, the children's church, if you will, when somebody from standing off takes notice of what they're doing. I think that's a good image for us, an image that people are always watching us, and whether they have their cameras out or not, they are taking pictures of the people who call themselves Christians. So that every time we stumble, or every time that we act like something other than Christian, it seems like there are always a lot of people watching, right? When we do things, oftentimes they're very good things that we intend to do and plan to do. Oftentimes those people are not there. They're not there to see the good that we're doing or to focus on what it means to be Christians by the way we're acting then. It seems like they show up so often in those times when we wish they weren't there. But today, on this middle of, the, middle of the first month of the year, I wanted to just take a few moments to reflect on some things because I feel like that I'm in my first year of pastoring this church. And you say, well, that's a little strange, Doug. You've been here now almost three years. Yes, but I, I'm counting the first six months is when I came, and my normal actions in a congregation as a pastor is to take the second six months to begin implementing new directions, to be implementing and encouraging people to do new things. And that's exactly the way I feel now. We had a kind of hiatus, if you will. Uh, we had some things happen that we did not plan on. We had some things happen that were not what we have chosen to do that has absorbed our time a lot. And those things are all getting straightened out here in these early months or two of this year. And we're going to be able to go back to who we are as a congregation. And you might think that all I know about these days is how well we do in court. Well, there's more to life as a pastor than what we do in court. And I want to share with you this, this week the picture I have of the First United Methodist Church in my mind and in my heart as I've been observing you in so many different kinds of situations and ways in this past three years. This fits in with the scripture because Paul does the same thing. He's writing a church to a letter to the Corinthian church, church at Corinth as they used to call it in those days, in order that he might address some issues, right? Most of you have probably read at some point in your life the, the Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And uh, it was not just exactly a happy, thrilling letter, right? Neither 1 Corinthians nor 2 Corinthians. Now, this kind of goes in the face of what a lot of people talk about, right, when they describe their church. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, what kind of church do you attend? And they'll go, well, 
I go to a biblical church, a New Testament church. In our church, we do things according to the way the first glorious church did it. Usually when I hear that, I'm tempted to say, oh, you're like the Corinthian church, right? <laughs> because there's a lot of division in the Corinthian church, and it's not very pretty. Truth is, if you look at the biblical pattern closely, when Paul was writing to all these different churches, they were not the perfect church. And none of them would probably have been a great model for a fully and completely biblical or perfect church. They had issues. They had things wrong. And yet, Paul would normally and most often, almost always, begin with a word of thanksgiving for the good that was in them and for the things that God had accomplished in them before he would get around to, and oh, by the way, it's kind of like the talk you give your, your junior high students, right? Your junior high students, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, your children. You know, you start out to compliment them because you want to get around to some things you think they could do better. You know, I appreciate all of those A's and B's you've done. That's great. I don't particularly like the grade you got in science. Or I don't like to particularly like the grade you got in math because it wasn't an A or a B. It was something else, right? Even we choose to talk about the good things before we talk about something else perhaps that needs addressing. But in this case, today, I would just like to give you my picture of the state of this congregation because I've been here long enough now to know you pretty well. And even though I've not been engaged with all of you as much as I would have liked because of the individual things that needed doing, I'm looking forward to doing that in the days to come. So I want to begin with sharing with you the thankful things that I see about this congregation, the things I thank God for, the things that I think make you unique as a United Methodist Church in some way or another. First of all, I am thankful for your faithfulness to Jesus, your love for God and your love for others. Every church has to be a congregation of the faithful because after all, they all, as Corinth, the people at Corinth, had been called out of the world to be a community of faith, to be a part of the work of the kingdom of God. So they came by faith into this relationship with Jesus, and they came as they were called out and as they responded, and they learned to love the God who first loved them just as you have. They learned to love others just as you have done. And that leads me back into one of, I think, your strongest points. And that is, I am thankful to God for the fellowship and the sense of community that lives within this congregation. You're really too large to be this close. You know that, right? I mean, in the first and early churches that I pastored, they would have anywhere from 15 to, to 75 people coming to worship. And if you know what the word family church means, you know what it means in that church. Because if you weren't one of the family, you really weren't. And they were small enough that you knew everything about everybody. And if you didn't, you could have go to any number of people in the little community and they could fill you in. Because they all know about everybody. But you are a fellowship and a community that has impressed me because you built that sense of community very intentionally within your, within your organization. You care for one another. You share life with one another during the good times, during the tough times. When it's necessary 
You hold one another up until you're able to walk again on your own. You don't leave people on the fringes to the best of your ability, but rather try to include everyone as a part of who you are. That is so very important. A Christian community church or does not have true fellowship nor true community is really not a biblical church. It's really not a church of our Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus was so caring about us. It never ceases to amaze me how this congregation still turns out when we've lost loved ones, how you still celebrate the memories of the persons who served here and have gone to be with the Lord, the way you come together to support, to guide, and to pray for one another during those times is a remarkable thing for the world to see. And if they knew it, if they were in the, on the inside during those moments, they would be taking a picture of you in order to remember what a church should look like in times of great loss. Someone just came up to me earlier this morning and said, you know, I want to have a service like that for me. And I said, well, do you want it tomorrow? And they said, no. I said, well, good, because I'm really out of the mood. I don't really want to lose any more members right now. We don't ever want to lose members. But what she was saying was, I want to see the church come together and worship and support one another in those times. I want to be remembered like Wes was remembered, as man who served his Lord. Now, you're not only a, a church fellowship that has community, but secondly, I thank God for your diversity. You are the most diverse congregation I've ever pastored. Now, I didn't say you were diverse enough, but by United Methodist standards, you're very diverse. We have lots of people from other countries, other nations who find home here. We have people spread around Carrollton in the different places. We don't all live in the same spot. We migrate from even other cities to come here to this place to have church, and we're diverse, and nobody cares, and nobody should. Because we're all one. There's no difference in us because of the languages that are our first languages, the color of our skin, or how big a house or how large a place we live in. You are the body of Christ truly in the sense that everybody is welcomed in. And that's hard to do. Hard to do in communities of faith. Secondly, or thirdly, I guess I'm at now, and you're wondering how many of these there are, right? Well, I got started early, so you're in a good spot. I'm thankful for your love for the Scriptures. Now, I've pastored a number of congregations through the years, and I'm well familiar with a number of other congregations. But in this church, your love for the Scriptures is real, and it's genuine. It's so genuine that you don't just love the Scriptures and put a Bible on your coffee table at home but you actually are committed to study the Scriptures. You're committed to learn what God expects of you and from you. You're committed to learn about the calling of following Jesus our Christ. And you are intentionally going about the work of teaching that to your youngest children, through your youth groups, in your adult classes, and to all who would come in, in small sharing groups. You are committed to the Scriptures. Everyone is not as committed as you as a church body. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, you know, I don't think I've really been participating in that part of the church. Well, you can get in that picture, 
All you have to do is plug in to any group that's meeting in this congregation because they're going to be studied in the Scripture. They're going to get around to it even when they tell you it's a, it's a class about something else. They're going to get around to studying the Scripture because that's who they are. They love the Scriptures, and they are committing, committed to trying their best to follow what they learn, and that's critical. I'm also committed, and something that ties real closely to those two ideas, I'm committed to the work of making disciples, and so are you. I'm thankful for your discipleship work. Every age, nobody's neglected. If we need to hire somebody to reach out to a group, you do it. We don't always do our best at some, some age groups as we do at others, but we try, we keep trying when we fail to establish real living groups, cells of persons throughout all aspects of life. It's not easy in the culture in which we live to do that. But your discipleship work is something I'm very thankful for. And you know, connected into that discipleship work, work is something that I treasure. You just don't retire. Uh, and I'm starting to feel a little guilty when I talk about retirement at any point in my conversation because some of you, like the two Steves, you know those two Steves, right? Those old men who keep teaching the young children. You know how long those old guys have been teaching those children? You know, those children are now coming, bringing in their grandchildren for them to teach. I don't even ask Steve Childers how old he is. And I'm not about to ask Steve. He just retired, but I'm not going to ask the other Steve either. Because, you know, but they just keep doing it. And all throughout the church, I find many of you still engaged, still giving of your time, precious as it is, to teaching our youngest children and our youth what you've learned, whether it's in scouting or it's in youth group or wherever it is. You keep on keeping on. Because you are a follower of Christ. God bless you for that. I also am thankful for your generosity. You believe in stewardship. You seek to tithe and to go beyond your tithing. Just the other day, somebody told me as they were making their pledge to the church or their estimate of giving, that they were doing that, but they were still, still working hard to get above that to their offerings, that they wanted to become better at giving above their tithe to the church. You're a generous church in the, what you give back to God, and I applaud you for that. Some people say, well, you don't teach a lot on stewardship either, but when y'all start doing poorly, I'll start preaching more about it. But as long as you keep meeting uh, what we normally expect, I'll still preach about it occasionally for those who are new among us. But the way you live and the way you give is impressive to anyone who knows you. Wow. I'm so thankful for your mission work. I've never been in a congregation that did as much outside this area's missions as you do. You reach around the world in many places. And as we've gotten a little smaller over the years, that's been harder and harder to do. But you continue to try and serve more than a dozen missionaries who are teaching and living for Jesus all around this world. I'm so thankful for that work in missions. Today, a natural thing is occurring in Cambodia. People that Chiv has been sent by this congregation to minister to, people who have come to the Lord from all areas of life over there, are now bringing their children, the next generation, and that's what a lot of their baptisms were about just this, yesterday. There's about disciples who want their children to be disciples, and that's what changes a nation. When it goes down in families and becomes something that the family does together. You are a beautiful people when it comes to foreign missions. 
I had to say something about worship. I'm thankful for your worship because the most selfish place in most churches is worship. You know what I mean by that? Nick, tell them what I mean. I know you love to talk. Go ahead. Yeah, I told you he'd tell you. Most churches you go into, when you speak the word blended worship, people start frowning. I don't like blended worship. Why don't you like blended worship? Because I don't like that bar room sound, all those drums and all that stuff. Somebody else says, well, I don't like worship either. Why? Because I don't like to sing all those old hymns and I don't know what half the words mean. And they look at one another and they point their fingers at each other and say, you should go to another church. And they each represent many, right? <laughs> That's the trouble. Y'all have not figured out you can complain about that yet. At least not while I'm here, and it's probably dangerous for me to mention it. I know when we sing hymns that some of you have larger smiles than usual, and you kind of coyly suggest, you know, we could really sing more hymns. It would be okay. And I know when we have music that's so loud that I want to leave. <laughs> A time or two that's happened. Uh, uh, but I don't. That Some people say, now that's real music. That's real music. The more drums, the better. The louder the guitars, the better. I get it. But you know what you do? You come and you give everybody permission to worship the way they want to. And you exercise patience waiting for your favorite part. And David is a, is a master at integrating all kinds of music within the congregation. From the instrumental pieces we hear from a talented orchestra every week to the choir that comes and sings in the very traditional form, oftentimes, sometimes in words we don't understand, and to the hymns that we sing that make a lot of us who know those hymns better than we know those contemporary songs smile within because we identified with those songs for many, many years. And yet, you make room for all of it. You don't demand everything be about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. There are a lot of ways to approach Jesus, and I thank God that you are making room for that and being one of the few strange churches that believes in blended worship because most of them have given up, and they do two, three, or four services. I know congregations that have 140 people in it, and they try to have two or three worship services so that everybody can be happy. You know what that sounds like? How many of you ever attended a church regularly that had less than 100 people in worship? Not too many of you. That's because I'm in the city, right? Let me tell you, you know what a choir sounds like in a congregation of 45? <laughs> Go out to your back alley some night, late at night. And those lovely people can sound like a group of cats coming. There's no music director. There's not really any music. But, brother, there is some heartfelt words that are being put out there. Now, if you go back and tell those congregations I pastored, I said that, I'll claim you're all telling a lie, and they'll believe me because they loved me. And I love them. I love them for the courage it took to sing that way. <laughs> I remember one of my moments of wisdom in one of those first churches that had about, let's see, 35 to 40 in it. And I got on a bandwagon one day about everybody singing. After all, it teaches in the West End hymnals that everybody should sing. Everybody. No matter your voice, how good it is or how bad it is, everybody should sing. 
So I got up there and boom, I laid it down. You know, everybody else sing. If you can't sing, you ought to be speaking the words. Boy, I thought I had preached a really good sermon. Next week, looked out there, and I can't remember the name, but he was a mountain of a man. He was huge. He wasn't in church. And he wasn't there the next Sunday. So I called his wife. I said, what's the matter? Is, so, is, your, is so-and-so sick? She said, no. I said, well, why ain't in church? Because you told him he had to sing. <laughs> I did say that, but he didn't have to take it so personally, did he? He said, well, he did, so he's staying home. So I got in the car, and I drove over to his house, and we talked about that. He was not going to sing. And he assured me that if he did, I would ask him not to. <laughs> you learn as you go along, right? You worship, and you bless one another as you worship. You don't care how the person next to you is worshiping. So far, since I've been here, so far, now I'm, I'm only up to this point, nobody's come to my office and said, don't you get tired of seeing old so-and-so raise their hands all the time? Or, don't you get tired that some of those people don't ever raise their hands, even when the song says raise your hands? Nobody's been in my office yet complaining about whose hands are raised or whose hands aren't. What a glorious place to be in. Just do your thing. You want to dance? Dance. You want to roll on the floor? There's a big floor. Roll on it. We don't care. You know, we just don't care. If it's holy to you and if it's the way you worship, we can tolerate most of it. I, we can tolerate probably all of it because it's worship for you. Now, that's going to change a little. David's been working on his Ph.D. in worship, his D-man, rather, and he's getting lots of knowledge. Right, David? Where are you out there? Yeah, there he is. He's trying to limit your exposure to what he's learned, though. He's, he's, work, he's, he's staying truthful to who you are. Education can be a little dangerous for us. When we come to worship, it's not about just your individual needs. It's about everyone's need to come to Jesus. And you practice that beautifully. I'm thankful for it. I'm also thankful for your commitment to prayer. It was only the first Sunday I was here when I'd been warned that people come to pray. And I said, well, that's good. That's good. I like prayer. You know, what's the preacher going to say? No, no praying in church. You know, <laughs> only the preacher prays. He said, well, we have a double-sided chancel rail where people come and pray on both sides of it. I said, well, that's interesting. If, if there's that many people praying, that sounds great. Their law will come at any time during the worship service. Really? Okay. So I came the first Sunday waiting to see what y'all were going to do. You know, it would be new for me. And the first Sunday was communion Sunday, and nobody came forward that Sunday to pray. And I didn't know you rarely did on communion because you were going to all be down there in a few moments. But at any rate, I didn't realize that. But the next week, you know, right there when people started singing, I started noticing people going down to Chancellorville and praying for people, people walking around, getting somebody else to come down and pray with them. And I kind of watched it, and I was telling another preacher about it. He said, really? I said, yeah. He said, really? I said, yeah. <laughs> they just came down and prayed like they belong there. He said, really? I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, did that bother you? And I said, no. Surprisingly, no. I was prepared to be, to be ready for whatever. But you know, when they did it, it seemed so real that my next question was, why isn't every Methodist church doing that? 
Why isn't every church coming down the chancel rail to pray for everybody? That's what it's there for. That's what it means to be a community of faith and to be together. If we can't pray for one another, my Lord, we pray here and miracles happen. Could that be connected? I think it might. Could that be connected, Brandon? I think it could, right? I, tell, I told a story about you yesterday, you weird duck. <laughs> You're supposed to have died. You know, you had a cancer that doesn't get cured. You're, not spo- You're past all the markers. They don't know what to do with you. Thank God they don't know what to do with you. And to my knowledge, you have never taken that for granted as anyone's work but the people who pray for you and the Lord who's healed you. Discipleship at work. You're a weird bunch of people. I thank God that you pray. And lastly, I know you were waiting for that point. Lastly, I thank God you're a people of courage. To do the things that Christians do in the way that Christians are supposed to do them. You have courage within your families. You have courage within your community. And when you are threatened, you don't run and hide. You don't resort to name calling. You don't treat others as they're treating you. But rather you treat others with grace and love as Jesus taught you. I thank you for that. Because I don't know that I would have survived that if I had not had your good example before me in the past two years. You are an amazing people. God has blessed us with so many spiritual blessings, just as Paul told the people at Corinth. You are richly blessed in giftedness, in grace, and in faith. Since Jesus has not returned, however, we have to be asking ourselves, so what can we do for Jesus and his kingdom next? Is there another dot to be added to this sermon? Something else we can do that we can improve upon that would make a difference in the kingdom of God? And I'm praying that you still are courageous people because I'm going to be asking you to do that in the coming months. Because I believe that Jesus has called us to take all that we have become in all who we are and to continue to do the things we've been doing but in a powerful and new way to put it all together like a many trickles of streams who come together to be a river so we might focus the river of life into the neighborhoods in Carrollton, Texas. I believe God is calling us once again to return to our roots from the 70s and to be an evangelical witness to an unbelieving world. I believe that God is calling us to use all these years that we've had to study the scriptures and to see God's miraculous power at work, to get so bold and so loving that we can go into a culture that is rejecting church and we can make church popular again because we can make Jesus popular again. I believe that he's calling you uniquely to do that because of who you have become and because of the things you've been doing for so long. Because it is not the work for lightweights. Trust me, the culture 
is eating churches alive. But it will not eat this congregation alive. It will not. You can stay right here and stay strong to the end. I'm confident in that. But that is not what I believe God is calling us to do. I believe God is calling us to brave the waters of the world with a radical love of Jesus Christ that is extended to every human being that we meet, that is meant to be shared with those who believe and accept and with those who make fun and call us names. It is meant to be shared in the neighborhoods of where you live, in the places where you work, and with everybody you come into contact with. We need to get radical about saving the world. We need to get so radical that we, like Jesus, are willing to die in these last years that the church might live in the future years. We need to make sure that the people we know are going to get to meet Wes that never went to church here. And the only way that's going to happen is if we get out of our comfort niches where we reside and focus on the people right in front of our face. I'm not talking about stopping missions. I'm not talking about stopping discipleship. But I am talking about a renewed emphasis and focus on the first priority of us all. I'm talking about us all. Right now, some of you are going, well, I know a dozen people who do that great. I'm talking about us all. The world's not going to get saved until churches as a community make reaching them their number one priority. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Just like the Baptists did in 1980 and 1990. And I say that with pride because I used to watch them as they would bring salvation to so many. But you know what? For the first time, that denomination has begun to straight line as well and even to decline. This thing that you cherish in your hearts that's so precious to you and so precious to observe is only made to thrive by one thing, and that's passing on what you've received. That's the only way it's meant to work. Jesus was so bold that he just passed it on to leaven. That's really not true, but it's kind of what we always say. He really passed it on to that leaven and this other larger group of women who were outside that circle. Thank God for them, because if it had just been left up to those 11 men, we'd have ended up destroyed a long time ago, right? But the women were there, and they had a big and a bold part in that mission. It was all of them sharing continually what they had learned in the Scriptures, and day by day, God was adding to their number. We need to fill this building. We need to fill this building more than once every Sunday. Not because large is good, but because there are that many people in the apartments living around us, in the homes and in our neighborhoods living around us, who don't really think that church is nearly so important today as you did when you first came here. They're not going to come to us. We have to go to them. I want to take all these things that you already are, this discipleship, this learning from the scriptures, and we're going to be devising classes that can be done in one week, two weeks, three weeks, and other weeks, so we can help you become a confident person who knows how to spread the gospel. And if you say, like the gentleman said when I asked him to sing in church, I'm just going home now. Don't do that. 
Because I didn't say you had to preach on the street corners. I didn't tell you that. You know how that paralyzes you? I went to Asbury, and when I went to Asbury, one of the first things that I heard after I had already transferred and moved out there was that their evangelism class taught by Brother Coleman, who was a tall, lanky Texan, every person in that class had to do street ministry. They had to go downtown in Wilmore, Texas, or Lexington, Texas, stand on the corner and start preaching to everybody walking by. And I thought, how am I going to get out here without ever taking evangelism? <laughs> I did not see myself doing that. Fortunately, he moved to another school, and I didn't have to do that. But it did get my attention about how important it was for the church to tell the story. Start with somebody easy. Start with your grandchildren. I'm going to walk down. I know that paralyzes y'all when I start walking now. And it should. kind of paralyzes me too. But I'm going to go over here this way instead of the middle. But I'll keep talking. Don't wonder. I am about through. If you're worried about that. There's no football game at noon, by the way. But if we will start telling our children the story, I had two things I witnessed just this week. Now I'm going to brag. This is grandfather time. I'm sorry. Uh, but the other night when we went to the funeral home, Miller, our six-year-old grandson, came with his family to see Wes and to see Arlene. And he was so upset and moved by that that I was moved too. And so we talked about it. We went over and we looked at Wes for a while. We talked about what it meant to go to be with Jesus. And he was good. Then there's my three-year-old granddaughter, right? Micah Lewis. Micah's not in here. She's safe away, right? Okay, good. This is for her mother. One of the ladies who works in the, in the school, in preschool, in the after-school care, wanted to talk about Micah Lewis. And she started describing this girl that I didn't know. This sweet little child who's all the time going around telling people biblically why they should do and not do other things in a real nice way. And I said, that was Micah Lou? And she said, that's Micah Lou. And I said, I can assure you she doesn't always act that way. She said, well, she does when she's here. And I've seen her in her classroom. And I look in that door and I see her sitting perfectly still and quiet. And I'm going, who is that girl? The church is changing them, informing them as they grow up. There's no way for a grandfather to ever think of thank a church enough if that's being done for his grandchildren. It's happening to yours too. I see them all the time. They hug me all the time. They tell me all the time they're praying for me. The quads are always telling me every week. Every time I see them in school, they break the line, get in trouble, probably come run and give me a hug and say, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your eyes to get well. And I keep telling them, well, keep praying. They're not there yet. And every week they keep telling me, I'm praying for you. They're learning that from you. There are so many people who care for them and don't know what it's like for somebody to care enough about them to pray for them. The church, including us, has got to refocus on what's right in front of our face. Not be afraid but learn how to touch their world in a way 
that they can see the genuine side of Christianity that lives in each other. I want to pray for them. Father, I thank you for these people. They are amazing people. I thank you for this community of faith, and I thank you for the challenge that you give us all to reach out into a hurting world to change lives. Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know you, this I can't imagine a better place for them to learn about you than this place. If they need to come forward and talk to me, just tell them, just tell them now to come down, down right here while we're singing these final songs. If there's some family here, Lord, that needs a new church home, that's looking for a new church home, we want to bring them in and let them be a part of this nurturing community so that they can nurture us even as we nurture them. Lord, whatever it may be, there are people who need to come to this chancel rail and kneel down before you and to pray and to ask you for the strength to be bold in the days to come. Move them now. Move them to come as we stand and sing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.